Welcome back, everyone. Today, we are talking about a bunch of stuff as per usual. We've got loads of news today. Loads of news. And only 50% of it is about AI, which is quite impressive <laughs> for this podcast. Um, we've also, we're also going to be talking about a lesson of the week, all to do with email marketing. And Tim actually has two lessons today, which is extra exciting. And we are going to be talking about a rather interesting marketing fail, um, which I think will will bring up some good discussion points. Although I was surprised Tim agreed with me with what I said. So you have to stay tuned to figure out what that might be. So I was like, maybe I'm just being a little bit, maybe I'm being a bit. Mm. Um, but yeah, you'll have to you'll have to stick around to find out what that is. So Tim, first bit of news, I will let you take over on the AI because it is your favorite. So let us know what's happening in the world of marketing and AI at the moment. Yes. Uh, so BuzzFeed just announced that it will use AI tools to personalize its content. I think this is all about using it to make quizzes, isn't it? And uh, yeah, mostly, yeah. What it looks like has happened to me is BuzzFeed said, yeah, we're going to use some AI for our content in a fairly small sort of localized way. And the world has said, wait, what? BuzzFeed's going to use AI? Uh, okay. And then the stock price quadrupled, quadrupled. So just BuzzFeed using AI for quizzes made the Whoa. stock price of the whole company quadruple. Um, and I wow. think that shows that we are in prime, like, AI bubble mode now it doesn't mean there's no value yeah. in ai obviously there's value in ai but uh, hold on peeps like buzzfeed's an established company it's been going for ages yeah. it's got a whole bunch of media properties generating loads of traffic this is just one tool like what is going on so yeah. the hype is is real wow that's that's actually incredible i think as well buzzfeed has a little bit been for the past few years it's definitely been on a bit of a downturn like people aren't talking about it as much as they were people kind of have i guess they don't have the best view of it. They see it as the quiz site. They see it as the millennial weird news site. And um, the fact that it went up, the stock price went up like five or four times even is just wild just because they're using AI. And I think maybe they're saying, you know, oh, you're using AI to do your quizzes. That's the most like time consuming part of the website. Like you're making good decisions. I don't know. If, uh, to me, yeah. it's like a really great decision. Like, the quizzes are going to be taking people a long time. It can't be fun writing those quizzes all day. Like, I think that's a great example of a use case where they're freeing up human time to be able to do this, to do other better stuff. Um, yeah. So yeah, very interesting. I think uh, it's obviously a bunch of stuff about, like, yeah, like you say, the direction that BuzzFeed is happy to go in. But I think, I expect what we'll say after this is that companies wanting to raise or companies wanting to sort of turbocharge themselves are just going to, you know, figure out how to stick the AI keyword in. Um, we've already seen this a bit. I was pitched on a, a website the other day where, you know, it was pitched as like this plus AI and had a look at it. And it's like, well, AI is such a minuscule piece of it. But because, you know, if you include the AI keyword, then all of a sudden you're going to be a unicorn. So I expect this Completely. is going to be the start of AI as a pseudo value driver. Um, the other piece right. of big-ish uh, AI news is, Obviously, since ChatGPT's come out in November, everyone's been talking about like the death of Google and yeah. the end of Google's dominance as a search engine, which, you know, wow, that escalated quickly. Um, but Baidu, which is the Chinese, the Chinese Google, that's a that's a very crude and um, basic way of saying it. But the the, the lead and um, the lead search engine in China, so Baidu has come out and said they've got their own ChatGPT competitor and that they are planning to embed this in search results. I think by March according okay. to Reuters. So that's interesting. So we're going to have Baidu and we're going to have Bing, who also wanted to embed ChatGPT into search results at some point, I think in the spring. Um, so all eyes now on Google as what what is Google going to do? How is Google going to do it? Because Google doesn't want to be the last search engine to embed these, um, these sort of chat AI interfaces. So it's interesting. Things are hotting up. I'm totally here for it, as you know. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. No, I'm starting to come around to AI a bit more, as you know. And um, yeah, I am very interested to see how search engines are going to include it and if it's going to offer value, which I'm assuming it will. Google, you know, they're very customer first and I can't see them making a big mistake just just to catch up. You know, I think it'll be a very thought out decision. Um, but yeah, moving away from AI, 
something that I spotted this week was that Nike and Tiffany and Co are doing a collab, which felt really, really random and a really strange combination of brands. Um, and it sort of got me thinking because I have a few friends who were very much, oh, Tiffany, you know, I hope I get proposed to with a Tiffany ring, all this kind of thing. But I don't hear my younger siblings, my Gen Z siblings talking about it at all. Um, so I started to have a look and look into everything. And I noticed like backed up by Google Trends, like I wasn't just making it up. Tiffany just isn't spoken about as much. Mm. And it makes me think that they must be trying to connect with a younger audience. They're almost using Nike as like a influencer, like yeah. collaboration because Nike has like, it was something like 250 million followers on Instagram. Whereas Tiffany's only has like, I say only, but has like maybe 28 million. So it's like a, almost like boosting their brand up. And it was actually really interesting to see like the sentiment and the comments that people were leaving um, on the post. And actually I have to say, I think it's a cool, it seems like a cool collab. I'm intrigued to see what comes out of it. Um, and I'm also interested to see what's in it for Nike as a whole. Maybe they just wanted to be able to use that blue and create a product because it's, you know, maybe they're seeing a trend where that turquoise color is becoming popular again, who knows? But um, yeah. I'm I'm definitely interested to see how it, how it works and if it pays off for them um, in terms of bringing in that younger that younger audience and making them obsessed with Tiffany Blue and all those things that used to be talked about. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one, isn't it? For those who are watching on YouTube, I'm just going to share screen so you can see what this thing looks like. Um, so it's announced in an Instagram post. Have you seen anything else other than the Instagram posts on the like Nike and Tiffany pages, Jess? Or is that nothing? That's just it? This so, was it, yeah. So if you're listening, it's a really simple Instagram feed post. It says a legendary pair at the top in a sort of classy font. And then there's a box, like a Nike shoe box with a Nike swoosh on the top. And it's in Tiffany, the Tiffany turquoise color. And then underneath, there's the Tiffany logo and the Nike logo together. And that's it. There's no info. It just says coming soon. No, and one million likes. People are freaking out. They're freaking out on the Nike page. They're freaking out on the Tiffany page. A couple of things interesting for me about this. Firstly, I know we always talk about Nike having really strong branding, and they're often used as like a branding case study, but Tiffany didn't even need to put their logo on this box for people to know it's Tiffany. How sick is that? Is that not the ultimate yeah. thing where you own a color so much that all people need to see is the color of a box? And they're like, oh, that's Tiffany. 100 what a play like not it makes nike look actually like you know a bit of a basic brand you know oh, you got to put your logo on oh bless you you don't have to put your word yeah. on you have to put your oh yeah wow. yeah completely completely yeah and i think as well another thing that they're playing on here is that nostalgia like they are playing a little bit on that whole thing of like when we were you know like i said when we were younger or now mm. we, we talk about the tiffany blue and we talk about this and it's almost like playing into that nostalgia bit like i don't know what it is about that advert but it has that kind of nostalgic cozy vibe i mean i call it an advert it's just an instagram post but there's just something about it i don't know it's obviously taking the internet by storm a little bit although that said there are some other um posts on nike of like announcing shoes and stuff where they've got a million likes yeah i did see um, Dale commenting on the live stream saying all I see is a delivery shoe box that's really interesting I didn't delivery didn't even pop into my head but maybe this is the thing maybe deliverer are starting to own that color um it would just be very interesting to see I would love to see behind the scenes to understand why this collaboration happened what's in it for both companies I mean it's fairly obvious what's in it for Tiffany's but I'm intrigued as to what's in it for Nike and also right. just who the product is aimed at that's the other thing is yeah. it aimed at is it going to be aimed at women is it going to be aimed at men who want to buy a present for a woman is it going to be more unisex like i'm very i'm very intrigued to see i mean for me nike has been pushing i know that they've stated uh repeatedly they want to sell more stuff through their own website they want to and that allows them to push average order value and, and push the value that they're getting from customers i think one of the trends that we've seen with nike over the last maybe five years is that they're really starting to push prices and add in um products to their lineup which are a much higher ticket so you know, it used to be that if you wanted to buy like a, you know, a jumper, there would be a, a real cap to the price that you could spend. Whereas now they're starting to push and you can spend hundreds um, on a jumper. And for me, this, this sort of collab allows them to test what the, the top appetite, how far they can push prices without it looking ludicrous. I mean, you know, I live in a fairly affluent area and on the school run, you know, there's like footballers and footballers wives and you know, these people have all the money that they can possibly want. 
and there are two brands that are consistently wearing Nike and Sweaty Betty. And I think Nike and Tiffany for that crew, for the Oxshot crew, they'll be all over it. I think that yeah. whatever the whatever the price tag is, is on these, they'll be buying because you've got the functionality, you've got the comfort with Nike, and then you've got that cachet with Tiffany. I think it's awesome. I, I, I'd love to see them do more stuff like this. I really think they could push prices a lot. Um, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think, yeah, like you were saying about that's kind of what's in it for Nike in terms of seeing how far they can push the prices. Um, I definitely think like I'm just reflecting on recent children's birthday parties I've seen where every single child at my little sister's 13th birthday, it was the 12th birthday, 13th birthday, were wearing Nike Air Force Ones to the point that some of them took the wrong shoes home because they were all exactly identical shoes, you know? And I think that's, they want those people, they want the TikTok generation to be talking about Tiffany's and feeling the same way that we used to when we were younger. Um, So yeah, very, very, very um, interesting. Very excited to see how it's going to play out. That's brilliant. You found a good one, uh, a good news item, Jess, about EasyJet and cost of living. What's going on here? Yes, indeed I did, which kind of inspired sort of the the feelings for the rest of the episode and talking about the cost of living crisis. Something that's come up quite a bit on the podcast and just comes up in conversation a lot is how we see a lot of brands who we consider to be quite high-end decide that during a time like this, they will, for instance, Waitrose will try and match Aldi. And you'll mm. see these things like Sainsbury's will be like Aldi price match, like all the shops you go into, they're saying we're as cheap as Aldi, we're as cheap as Aldi. And then actually, when people decide they want something a bit more high end, they don't really know where to go. They don't really have that same affinity. And we've actually seen the reverse in a positive way with EasyJet, in that EasyJet is actually doing really well at the moment, despite the cost of living crisis. They're finding that just as many people are booking flights. And my theory is that because they've always positioned themselves as a low cost airline, now that people are trying to save money who might normally book a more high end airline for their holidays, those people are now using EasyJet. So they don't want to compromise on having a holiday. So they're booking EasyJet, whereas there's potentially EasyJet's normal customers can't afford a holiday this year, potentially, or during the cost of living crisis. But those people who go on five holidays a year and fly first class or whatever, decide and actually we'll go with EasyJet because we know they're cheap. And I think that maybe not quite as dramatic as that, but I think that is why, you know, they've positioned themselves so well that the first thing that pops into people's minds when they're deciding to book a flight is EasyJet right now. And I think you could say the same of Ryanair, but Ryanair, I think, doesn't fly as many countries as EasyJet. I think EasyJet probably goes further afield. Um, But yeah, I just thought that was really fascinating. And it shows that, you know, if you really position yourself well, People, it's not even necessarily 100% to do the cost of living crisis, but it is 100% relevant. If you position yourself so well that, you know, people will still pay attention to you, even though they probably wouldn't have shopped with you before or used your services before. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I I agree. This particularly timely this week, I think, I think it was this week, uh, Flybe collapsed. And so for those outside the UK, Flybe is, I think, Am I right in saying it's the largest? Yeah, according to Wikipedia, it's the largest independent regional airline in Europe. The largest independent regional. It's like the, the most popular radio show in this part of Norfolk. But it's um, you know, Fly B was a big deal, and so this isn't like all airlines are doing well. This is like Ryanair and EasyJet in particular. Both of them immediately came out after the Fly B announcement and said, "We'll take the staff. We're hiring. Like we're growing. Things yeah, are great for yeah. us." So it's really interesting that the low cost airlines are thriving and you know some of the some of the stuff further up the food chain is is being cut off. I know we we've had um a couple of videos and a webinar on recession marketing and we always go back to the Harvard Business Review article by Quelch and Jocks I think during the last recession they identified the four different products or services um or four different categories of products or services and how each of them was impacted in a recession they found that essentials people would buy essentials still uh treats were indulgences that they could justify and for me i wonder if like what you're saying if flying with a more premium airline was considered a treat which is now being unwound and they're going back to the essential which is easyjet and ryanair so we're seeing people sort of shift one category down and realizing that actually you know who you fly with at the end of the day, it doesn't make a massive difference, does it? You're still in the air. It's a grim experience for everyone, no matter who you're with. So save a bit of money and go with EasyJet. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah. 
I would definitely say if you're on the other side of that spectrum and you are a more high-end brand, for instance, and we've discussed this before on previous previous videos, previous podcasts, but position yourselves, instead of positioning yourself as like, this is luxury, position yourself as a treat. Like you just said something about that there, you know, saying that it's it's more to do with these luxury products and position yourself as like, you know, something that's nice to have. We've said before yeah. as well, like for instance, if you are selling high-end food, for instance, like M&S or Waitrose, some people might scoff and say it's not high-end, but to me, M&S and Waitrose is high-end. Um, you know, instead of being like, oh, we're going to be as cheap as this company, try and position yourself as if you're not going out to fancy restaurants, yeah. come to us instead and we'll give you that luxury experience at home. It. Um, so it's definitely important during this time, during the recession, during the cost of living crisis to think about the ways that you can position yourself. Think about why people aren't buying from you and how you can bring them back in without kind of compromising on price. It's not always that easy to just be like, you know, so if I was like, I don't know, what's a high-end flight companies, British Airways or something, you know, maybe you need to really be selling the benefits of flying with a better airline, maybe EasyJet, the seats are uncomfortable and the plane rattles, and maybe you need to find these ways to really like play into these other things that people might be concerned about if they are flying with EasyJet without sort of bringing it to a slanderous level, I think. Yeah, yeah, you don't you don't need to publish the infographic that links, you know, likelihood of death and average cost per ticket or anything like that. But yeah, I think it's, it's about... <laughs> <laughs> that is a genius idea. Uh, <laughs> it's it's um, more, you know, you're, you're selling to the comfortably well-off, so they're going to need a bit more justification for the purchase. And it's a you deserve it type message for the, you know, the live for today's carefree group, isn't it? So. Yes. Absolutely, plenty absolutely. of like Nike and Tiffany, they're going to sell out of whatever this thing is. So it's not that there's no money; it just means that people are having to fight harder for the money. And if they're not justifying it, they're losing it. So yeah, one hundred percent. Prepare for battle. Indeed, yes, yes, and don't like I said, you don't need to bring yourself down, and you don't need to hike yourself up. Just stick where you are and figure out what makes your company worth it. Basically, um, on to the next part, Tim. Yandex, please tell me oh, all yeah. these things about Yandex and algorithms and all this. Oh, Shoot. blimey, this is a monster. Some people are saying this is the biggest thing to happen in SEO for whatever, 10 wow. years. I, I think it is and it isn't. So if you don't know Yandex, they're like the Russian Google, right? So this is a Russian language search engine um, that is, I think they're, I think they're number one in, in Russia. I'm not sure exactly what market share, but yeah, they're, they're sort of Russian equivalent. Anyway, um, and their basically their ranking algorithm has been leaked and there's a huge amount of data all the code is there all the they've even got weightings of each different algorithmic component wow. um it's stunning absolutely stunning and particularly you know you might think well yandex who cares about yandex you know often it's being thought of as a little bit more basic than google but the thing is yandex was originally conceived as a sort of google competitor and yandex hired lots of ex-googlers to work on it so i think People are assuming that 70% sort of uh, likeness with Google search results in Yandex. So it's not a million miles away. And we can make some assumptions about what Google is going to be valuing based on this, this Yandex um, algorithm leak. So we don't want to go too far. We don't want to say this is Google's ranking factors. But it's really interesting to see inside a modern search engine because as SEOs, for the last, say, 10 years, We've just been prodding at things and seeing what works and noticing what works. We've never actually, no one's ever gone, hey, do you just want to like have a look? Here, here it is. So now we get to have a look at it and it's absolutely fascinating. So um, I've got some sort of brief takeaways. The whole code base is, is massive. All of the data is absolutely huge. You know, people have been misinterpreting it already. Um, there's just so much to wade through and to make it even more difficult, a lot of it has to be translated from Russian to English and stuff gets lost along the way. But there are some kind of interesting things. So I've just made a list of them. I thought I'd blast through and see if any poke out to you. Um, but uh, Michael King from IPOL, uh, who's IPOL rank on Twitter, he's done a really interesting analysis um, on uh, search engine land, I think it was. Anyway, there was some initial claims that Yandex had 1,900 um, ranking factors. He actually says, no, that's just one of the one of the files. There's actually over 17,000 
ranking factors. Not all of them are active, but that is a lot of ranking factors. Um, So yeah, there's some interesting stuff. So some of it looks really crude. For example, there is a ranking boost for any Wikipedia URLs, which seems a little bit basic. You would have thought that you'd be able to reward Wikipedia with the right ranking, regardless of it being on a Wikipedia. Yeah. Um, but whatever. Uh, page rank is important. Yandex previously, I think they said they were going to stop using links. They were being they're too gameable, so they stopped using links, but actually it looks like they haven't stopped using links. There is definitely a page rank involved and lots of different link metrics. Quite interesting. You get more credit for a link from a main page rather than a deep page. You get more credit for um, backlinks where the uh, the anchor text is your brand name than you know commercial Ooh, terms. As long okay. as the mix is you know as long as the mix is right, I think a lot of this is basically designed to avoid over rewarding sites which have been heavily SEO'd. By heavily SEO'd, I mean like you know they've someone's given five hundred pounds to like some spammer and just said build me like ten thousand backlinks with this exact match yeah. anchor. So I think that type of stuff. A lot of this is about that and how they sort of mitigate the effects of that. Uh, user behavior is a big one. So user behavior has always been a bit of a question mark. How much does Google use user behavior? Does it use data from analytics to inform how well people, how much people are using websites and how well they're getting on with them? And would that impact ranking? I think Google, as to my knowledge, Google said we don't use that. But then people are wondering if someone goes onto a site and then comes back and continues searching. That's the sort of user behavior flag. Well, it looks like Yandex does use user behavior and it uses it from two sources. Firstly, their own Yandex toolbars. They've got like a little search toolbar that you can install in your browser. And that seems to be watching you at all times and feeding data back to the ranking algorithm, um, which they'll use. And also Yandex has a sort of analytics thing called Metrica. uh, And they use that as well. It looks like they use the data from that to inform ranking, which is interesting. Uh, Other things, old pages tend to rank better. Uh, there seems to be a waiting for older pages rather than newer pages. But if those older pages have been recently updated, that also helps them. So the takeaway there is if you've got old content versus writing a new content, like update the old one rather than writing something new. And they reward sites with a lot of branded traffic and traffic that people search for. So they just don't want to see all of your traffic basically coming from organic search. That's a sort of negative um, indicator. They like to see that your website is the last site searched, the last site visited in a particular search. So let's say I'm looking for like phone cases, right? They want to see that your site is the last one people search for. So people aren't going on another phone case related site after that, which I think makes sense. Yeah. Um, And they downrank sites that have Yandex ads on them. So downrank sites that have a lot of ads on the page. And interestingly, .ru domains as well. They also seem to downrank Russian domains, which feels kind of odd. So a yeah. whole bunch of stuff there. Yeah. Wow. Crikey. I would definitely say I think we're going to see an influx of how do I say this? SEO gurus who are going to start saying taking things from this leak like tomorrow and being like, this is what yeah. you should be doing. Do this right now. And I'm gonna say, if you're doing stuff that you've always been doing and it's been working really, really well for you. And then all of a sudden somebody's saying, we saw this leak and now you need to do everything differently. Don't feel like you need to change your whole strategy. Because of course, as Tim said, number one, it's not exactly the same as Google. Yes, there are old people who used to work at Google working at Yandex, but that doesn't mean it's exactly the same. And as also mentioned, there's potentially some translation issues. So some people might be translating it and might think, you know, it means one thing and then it doesn't, or they might be kind of like, well, it sounds like it means this. And I'd love, um, so I would say take a little bit of time um, before jumping on new trends. I think there's a lot of stuff here that is kind of a little bit common sense. There's some stuff yeah. here that's a bit strange. Like I can imagine Google probably isn't doing the Wikipedia thing and they're probably not down ranking sites with Google ads. Those seem quite odd, um, but there's definitely stuff here that's like, you know, we kind of, we can kind of assume like the last visited site in search, Google do want to know that you're finding what you need on a website. So they probably are doing that, but just don't take this as like the be all and end all um, of everything. I think that's the most important takeaway from this. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's any 
I don't think there's actually any like surprises about ranking factors. I think it's more the stuff that's interesting is just how they're implementing it. So I think a lot of us marketers have known that website user behavior is, is really important. You want to make a website that people like, and that seems to perform better. And if you spend enough time analyzing search engines, you know that well-designed sites that have nice user flow and good conversion optimization and great navigation, you just know that they rank better. This is kind of showing you, okay, and that's why on Yandex, that's why they rank better. And here are the specific metrics. Adele's just mentioned Yandex have a bunch of really useful free tools like a Hotjar competitor. Well, I guess that tells us why, because they're using that to source their data. I guess one thing that surprised me a little bit was that these ranking factors seem to be fairly um, static, like there's weightings in there. And I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that there wasn't a more sort of black box component to this, that this was literally just like, here are the ranking factors. I'd always assumed that, you know, given the amount of machine learning that must be going on, that that, that, that it's as simple as like, here's a file of ranking factors and all of their individual weightings. Um, so I was a little bit surprised by that. But yeah, like you say, this doesn't actually change anything fundamental about SEO at all. Everything is just a confirmation of basically what we already knew, but it's just giving us a little bit more detail on, oh, and here's yeah. how we get that information. Completely, completely. And I think it's, it's probably going to be nice for some SEOs who have been saying for years, yeah, this is what I think. And then it's been confirmed in writing. So maybe you can get bragging rights out of this, um, which maybe. is nice for people. But I think, yeah. yeah, I think it's really neat that this is being released. And I think, um, well, released, leaked. Leaked. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think it's um, it's it's pretty neat. And I think it's a good place to find inspiration, I would say. But don't take any of it at face value. Yeah, I would love to see what um, what the most competitive SERPs are going to look like on Yandex over the next six months. Because if I'm targeting Yandex, this is my playbook. This is my playbook yes. for life, for yeah. sure. I don't gonna think they're going to be, really be able great. to change. I don't think they're going to want to change these ranking factors. It's just like, to be fair, if there's like 17,000 or however many ranking, there is, it's very difficult to optimize for all of them. Um, but yeah. But, it's, but it's, there's going to be some people who are going to try. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> there's going to be some people. If you're selling like Viagra or, you know, casinos, then yeah. Yeah. They're going to try. Your checklist up. try. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Seems like there's just so much, there's so many big changes happening in marketing right now, whether that's yeah. from like, you know, seeing colossal leaks like this or the leaps and bounds that AI is making. I think, I know I always joke, Tim was like, or Dale said, we need to talk about this BuzzFeed thing. I was like, do we need to talk about AI again, really? But we do, we do, you know, it is important as much as I'm like shaking my fist in the air because we've got a video launching at 3 p.m. So it's also about AI. So AI enjoyers, you're having a great week on the Exposure Ninja channel. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's always fun to talk about. And it's like I said, I started off a bit of a hater and now I'm I'm coming around to it. So yeah. <laughs> what um non-AI related lesson do you have for us this week, Tim? Okay, I've got I've got one and a half or one. I've actually got two lessons in the second lesson, if you like. Uh, I'll tell you a story okay. about it anyway in a minute. Um, the first lesson is email marketing. I just run a webinar on email marketing. And at the start, I said to people, like, just let me know how many subscribers you've got and how many emails on average each of those subscribers is really is receiving each week. And I kind of knew what we were going to get. And we kind of got exactly what I expected, which was people have a lot of subscribers and they're barely emailing their lists. You know, people are saying, I've got 20,000, 30,000 subscribers, 40,000. Some people have got, you know, a few hundred or whatever. And the numbers of emails that those people were receiving every week was low. Like probably the 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 mode would have been zero. Um, and then there were a few people doing like two to three, which I think is, is probably a, a sort of good level. Uh, but so many people aren't using their list. And the reason I think this is so important, firstly, we're going into tough economic times and traffic costs money. Email marketing does not cost money. <clears throat> or at least it costs very little money. We were just doing a session on automations and different automations that you can build. Um, that will cost some money to get set up, but then that'll you know that'll live forever. The the thing I don't understand is people having these huge lists, huge relative to the size of their business, and not tapping that list to make money. Every time you send out a well written email promo, you will make money from your list. So the only question is, how many times are you going to email them this week? And people are scared about emailing their list for all sorts of reasons. Now, every time you send out an email, you're going to get unsubscribes. Yeah, 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 you are. But you weren't going to sell them anyway. 
You're not going to sell them by not contacting them. Yep. So you may as yep. well contact them. If they unsubscribe, that's okay. It just reduces the cost of your email marketing subscription. Like we got we got to act from a way of increasing revenue, not by avoiding making someone unsubscribe who signed up for your list like three years ago and totally forgot and doesn't know anything about you and isn't even in the market for what you do. Don't optimize your marketing strategy for that person. Optimize your marketing strategy to make buyers. So yeah, it's, it's not just small companies. This is large companies too. Um, and actually, I think it gets worse the larger the company gets because they get scared about emailing their list because of you know anything like GDPR or solicitor said we should probably avoid emailing or you know they worry about tone of voice until the only thing that they're able to send out is like a brochure of their services or their you know their corporate mission statement in an email. It's totally worthless. So it's just such it's so untapped. Like it's the one thing that we sell where you can pretty reliably get ROI within 30 days, right? Yeah. Even ads, it's going to take a while to warm up. It's going to take a time to optimize. With email, if you've got a list and you're not running promos to it, we can run some promos, we can get automation set up and you're going to be making money. In some examples from the webinars, like 1.72 million in business from that email list in six months. And that's 10x the revenue that they generated from organic search. So this is a huge source of business and people are just sat there because they're scared to email or they don't know what to email. And I just, I just think it's crazy, Jess. I just think it's crazy. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I've definitely seen a lot of people as well who just send emails out that are just sales emails. Like when I've been expecting to get some, maybe some advice or maybe just some other little things, it's just always sales. We've got a discount, we've got a sale on, we've got, and I'm just like, I just don't want to hear that. Like, especially when it's like an online tool. Like I've seen that a lot of online tools, like send me emails about how to use your tool better or, you know, mm. other things that are adjacent to said tool that would make a lot of sense. Um, but I have to say, I've seen stats before with emails that say that people are like something wild, like 50% of people make a purchase based on an email they've received every month. And I'm one of those people. Like I've made a purchase. Yeah. I made a purchase this week just because I had an email that was like, this is an exclusive product drop for email subscribers and you lot get to see it first and buy it now and then everybody else gets it later. And I felt quite smug when I, after I made purchases, then I saw on Instagram that they were like teasing the products. I was like, well, I already know what it is. You know, I just think like, yeah, exactly. There's so many like different ways that you can use your email list and people do read their emails. So, you know. There's not a person on the planet yeah. who doesn't check their emails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of people it's the first thing it's the first app they open in the morning and the first yeah. thing they do is check the emails i got um, a stat for you yeah i got a stat for you from send it oh it's i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher this well while tim's finding his stat yeah. what i will say is we were having a discussion um during the day after a significant historical event happened in the uk a few months back and um we were saying should we send emails out and there was kind of a discussion and I went to my emails to sort of say, see who else was sending emails out. And then I blooming ended up making a purchase of concerts. <laughs> and I was like, you know, it really is. It really is like, it really does work. It really, really yeah. does work, you know? So yeah. Do you have your stat ready, Tim? Yeah. Best time to email because everyone else was scared of emailing. Mm -hmm. um, my stat is according to Adobe, 41% of millennials check their work email in bed. 41% yeah, of millennials. I think yeah. I'm a millennial. I don't. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. You have self-control. You have good work-life balance if you're not checking your work emails in bed. But I don't check my work emails in bed, but I check my normal emails. So. There you go. Yeah. Ecom brands, hit up Jess. If you're selling chinchilla, yeah. gaming memorabilia. I will buy it. Yeah. I will absolutely, 100%, 100%. <laughs> it really is. That really is, yeah. Email. It's not dead, as many people that say it. No, email not is not dead. dead. Email is yeah. not dead. E email has to be replaced by something for it to be dead. And so far, there's nothing like people thought WhatsApp was going to do it. Facebook tried to do it with their messenger. Nah, nothing has touched no. email yet because it's free. It's no. not owned by anyone. Yeah. No, the only thing that sometimes I've seen that can be effective is apps that send notifications. So if you have an app for your e-commerce store, for instance, and you send notifications, that can be pretty good. But I still think it doesn't do better than email because people. Yeah can be funny about how many apps they have on their phone, etc. What's your second lesson, Tim? My second lesson. So it's also I, I, two I, lessons. Yeah, it's sort of two. Le 
it's a weird story. Let me, I'll just tell you a story, right? So every so often we find uh, a business or a client or a piece of marketing, which sort of breaks our, breaks our frame and, or teaches us a lesson that we'd forgotten or, you know, whatever. Anyway, I'm talking to a client on uh, last week and they show me this landing page and this landing page looks horrific. It's so ugly. The colors are vile. Like he, He'd be totally cool because he's like, I hate it too, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, the above the fold, there's this really weird stock photo that looks just terrible and it's so big that it pushes the content down below the fold. Like, if Excellent. you get your CRO checklist out, this thing is failing on almost every measure. <laughs> on looks, tone of voice is pretty good, to be fair. And actually, I think that's probably my first lesson is as long as the really important stuff is there, you're going to be okay. So anyway, I don't want to... So, so I'm like, all right, how, how's this thing working? It turns out it's converting from PPC at 10%, which Ow. is pretty mad. It's pretty mad. And not only that, the cash being invested in Google Ads is returning 10 to 1. It's getting 10 x roi and this is a it's pretty high ticket and it's almost entirely profit so this is by sort of ratio measure one of the most profitable ad campaigns i've ever seen on one of the worst looking landing pages i've ever seen so firstly it's one of those where like uh, we, we were brought in to fix this thing right and i'm looking at this thing thinking i don't want to i don't want to fix this too hard because you know, if you'd have told me it was possible to get 10, 10% conversion rate out of this market and a 10 times ROI, I would have said, that's going to be tough. Like we're going to need some serious firepower and a lot of testing. Well, this business has done it within three months from a standing start with this ugly thing. So yeah, it broke my pattern in a couple of ways. But I think the, the, the lesson is, the first lesson is they got the really important stuff right. So product market fit is absolutely nailed. What that audience needs and what this business delivers is an absolute direct match. And there's actually nobody else really solving this problem. So when the product market fit is there, all of the other stuff around it, the wrapper becomes way less important. Credibility, yes, you need to build credibility. But if the thing is just absolutely what you need, like if you're crawling through the desert, you're about to die, and then someone's got a bottle that looks like it's water, right? It doesn't matter what the logo is on that. It doesn't matter if that person's wearing like a bandit costume and they're trying to charge you 10 grand for it and they don't have any testimonials, they don't have any reviews. If that person's like, here you go, you're taking that water, right? Or water, it might be clear urine. You don't care. Like the, the product market fit is absolutely there. And I think that's what this business has in spades. The second thing is due to the particular positioning of this business and the tone of voice and all that type of stuff, it is possible that actually the horrible design is a conversion aid rather than a conversion suppressor. So when I used to be building tradesman websites like plasters and plumbers and stuff, we found that if we used a stock photo of the plumber smiling or cheesy and you know with a nice shiny spanner in the beautiful bathroom, it suppressed conversions compared to you know, the pick that, you know, James's wife took of him with his bum hanging out like on the corner of the van and this thing's a dump and, you know, the signs peeling off and stuff. That actually worked better for conversions. And the only reason I can assume, I mean, that's a slight exaggeration. We tried to get them to at least pull the trousers up. But the only thing that we can assume is that it's more consistent with the positioning. If you go on a plumber's site and it looks too slick, then you're like, this is a lead gen firm. This isn't a plumber. Um, so I don't know if a similar thing is happening here, given that this business is all about selling the personality, the founder in this site most definitely looks homemade, but it's just one of those that, you know, as much marketing, as many landing pages as we've reviewed, I would never pick this one out as a winner. And it just shows you just got to keep an open mind and let the data do the talking. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I've had discussions quite a lot about, um, businesses who will have a website that's designed to win design awards it's not designed to convert people and this is a great example isn't it of a website that i mean it's not even necessarily designed to convert people but they could have spent loads of money on getting this sleek design and all this and they probably would have done a lot worse 
um, yeah. people probably wouldn't have trusted them. I wouldn't have seen them in the same way. So I think, yeah, yeah, you wrote here, beauty is a tool, not a price of entry. And I think that's very, very true. If you can have an amazing landing page, awesome. But if you've got a landing page that looks a bit naff, but it's converting really, really high, then, you know, it's all good. You don't need to spend that money fixing it when it's actually okay. But then, I mean, I'm kind of excited about this, Tim, because I want to know if there are changes we can make that's going to make that conversion rate even higher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is what's well, exciting, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. And obviously there are businesses where the first impression and design and the look and feel is really important. We looked at, was it yeah. Lemonade last week? Yes. And it's yeah. basically just a completely generic product behind beautiful design and that's why it works. So there are times when, you know, design beauty is a tool which has to be deployed, but it's interesting. It's not always. What, what we're going to do is we're going to design some stuff and we're going to get them to split test it and see if we can see if we can improve it. Because it might be that they've nailed their positioning so much. It's working despite this thing. And if we can improve it further, you know, the highest conversion rate I've ever seen on a, on a homepage was 30% from organic traffic with a low percentage of that, that branded. That was another real amazing product market fit thing. Great front end offer as well. So, you know, let's not say 10% is the, the upper limit, but um, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. I'll keep you up to date. Yeah, I'm very, very excited to hear how that goes. Because yeah, maybe it will be. Maybe it will be a 30%. A 30% and maybe it will be one of those. We shall see. So we've got a marketing fail coming up. This one is very interesting indeed. And I was... Um, very surprised to see this because I really, really like this brand. And I'd actually, I've included them in a blog in the past and I had included them in a upcoming video script and then chose to take them out and replace them with my besties Lemonade um, as a different insurance company. Um, but the, the brand is called Dead Happy and they are a life insurance brand. And one of the reasons why I really, really liked them was their, um, was their positioning. Like it's absolutely fantastic. You know, it's very much aimed at people who need life insurance, but yeah. they don't want to go through all the hassle. They don't want to go through all the like, it feels like it's like leagues away. They don't get it. It's expensive. It takes ages. You know, they don't understand whether they're eligible or not, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I really like their branding, you know, stuff like make a death wish, you know, so that you can figure out, oh, okay, this is things that might happen if, you know, if I die, this is what goes down, et cetera, et cetera. But they ran some ads this week. Well, they ran one particular ad, which unfortunately fell really flat. And it fell really flat for me. Um, and I just thought it was a bit naff. And what they did is they ran an advert, including a um, doctor, Harold Chipman, if you haven't heard of him, who used to murder his patients. And basically had a picture of him with the tagline, you know, dead happy insurance, because you don't know who your doctor might be. Um, and it fits somewhat with their kind of tone of voice and stuff. But also, I think you can make the same point whilst not sort of including someone from recent history who caused, you know, pain to a lot of people and fear for a lot of people. Um, and it just felt a little bit, well, actually it felt very distasteful and very just not, not really appropriate um, to me. And I did say interested to see if you have an opposing opinion tim as i'm a snowflake because i am and i don't mind <laughs> I'm actually proud of it but um sometimes i see things like that and i i feel some kind of way about it and then i'm like is it just me is it just me but i would love to know your thoughts tim on this advert because it was just very like i said just rubbed me the wrong way wasn't very impressed yeah i no, i totally agree with you I, I don't get any sort of emotional response from it at all i don't think like oh that hurts me or that offends me um but i think it's a total fail on their part because you know, I think fundamentally with advertising, we've got to think about who we want to be associated with in our in our customer's mind. We're trying to build an association between our brand and some sort of feeling. And that particular Harold Shipman picture that they used was his mugshot. You know, this is a guy who killed, I think, hundreds of people, right? And then he killed himself in prison. Like, I just don't know why you would want to associate your brand with that in any way. Like, if you're going yeah. to do anything, you know, pick some historical figure who killed people but is a bit of a cult hero right i don't know like you know robin hood or something because you never know who might be plotting against you or you know something else like there's a way of making that message but attaching yourself to something which isn't like utterly repulsive and terrifying for people so yeah i mate yeah 
this is one of the this is one of those brands, isn't it? They're a bit like Brewdog in that they have to toe a very fine line between. Um, they want to push the boundaries. They want to get reaction. They want to get press about their ads, but quite often, you know, they're walking along a very fine mountain ridge, and it's very easy to fall one way or the other. And yes. I, yeah, I mean, That's this will pass, but. Whoa, oh yeah <laughs> completely and I did I did leave a note sort of to say like maybe I'm just not their target audience but up until I sort of saw that ad I was like really had a strong affinity for them you know they were my go-to when mm. I wanted to include a good landing page in an article or cover somebody with good positioning and it seems like a shame that they decided to make this make this choice and I think you have a great point on they could use fantasy characters or they could use characters from movies or they could use people who are very very historically you know just hundreds and hundreds of years ago that aren't um there's there's not going to be people in recent history that have been affected by it. and I think we've actually had the same feeling about it but for two different reasons I'm coming at it from a very personal sort of um empathetic place and you're coming at it from like uh why would you want to be associated with that behavior you know why would you want yeah. your brand and that person to be next to each other and I think that's that's a really really valid point as well because now when I think of dead happy I'm going to think of the fact that they use Harold Shipman that's a bit weird. Yeah, you know, it's think... totally weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. I think there was some that the, uh, the BBC article in, interviewed the founder, I think, or someone from the from the firm. And I thought what was really interesting is that they said our advertising is designed to make people stop and think. So I think they're right there because for selling life insurance, that is exactly you've got to break people's pattern because, like you said at the start. Life insurance, particularly for people our age, is, um, you know, in my head, if I had to bet either way, I would say I'm never going to die. So why would I ever buy life insurance, right? Because I'm utterly convinced that I'm never going to die because death is this distant concept that happens to other people. So if you're going to get through that, you've really got to, you know, it's got to be a, like a stop dead in the tracks moment, like, you know, picture of your own funeral with your kids crying and like, what next? Like, so th they have to break through that. Um, what's the word? The uh, anti, I can't think of the word, but they have to break through that, you know, where it's just not even on the radar. So I think they get, they understand the brief, but being provocative, you know, there's ways to stop, make people stop and think. And I think, yeah, you gotta, you gotta, there needs to be some sort of brand playbook there that says, here's who we are. Here's who we're associated with. Here's the feeling that we want to arouse in people. What we don't want to arouse in people is terror. We want to <laughs> arouse in people that they want to take care of their family or, you know, whatever. And then we need to make all our ads consistent with that thesis, right? What we don't want is like to be front page of the news because we've just associated ourselves with a serial killer. So, Yes. Oh. Yeah. No, this is, this is exactly the thing. I think, um, you know, we've been working on some branding stuff internally and some of the stuff that's come up has been like, you know, we want to be cheeky, but we don't want to be nasty. And I think that's yeah. quite that's that's almost the same way they they should have said, you know, we want to push the boundaries, but we don't want to associate with serial killers. You know, um, maybe it's not that dramatic. And I would say, you know, you said about it, it disrupts you and it makes you um, pay attention or makes you think about life insurance. I'm thinking about life insurance now, but I'm not thinking about getting it with dead happy, you know, no. and it's like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think. Um, but maybe, like I said, maybe I'm just not the target audience. Maybe they've had loads of people who thought it was really funny and thought, yeah, actually, that could happen to me. And maybe they've had loads of sales and we're, you know, we're just sat here and being like, mm. but other than that, fantastic website, fantastic positioning, amazing landing page. I've actually had loads of adverts from them recently on Instagram that have been really good and had nothing to do with Howard Shipman. I've skipped them all because I've been like, I don't want to hear from you right now. You've annoyed me. Um, and, you know, and it's, but it's, that's the thing, right? Is that I, I've been skipping those ads because even though they were quite good because of the other one that bothered me. So yeah. So yeah. All right. So let's say then Jess, let's say that you're in dead happy's marketing department. What do you do now? Do you turn off the other ads? Cause you're like, we're going to get suppressed response. Do you go harder? Do you try and, overtake the Harold Shipman thing? Do you try and come up with something which is going to be bigger? Like, what's your next move? It would be to overtake. It would be to try and do something. I I'd, I, would almost make a joke about it, in a mm. way, because they have that tongue-in-cheekness. They could make a joke about how, you know, they killed the vibe, 
or something, yeah. you know, how they, yeah, you know, yeah. how so we, ki- we killed our they, ad campaign. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the thing, this is the thing, there's so much that they could do to be like, you know, life insurance for when you make a mistake or yeah. when you do, when you do that, you know, there's definitely like some places that they could go. And I think sometimes, you know, Brewdog do this as well. They double down and they say, we were right. And everybody that's upset is wrong. And sometimes actually um, you can, you can turn it around and turn it into a positive. Mm. And I think, um, I think, yeah, that, that is an opportunity for them. They could make some jokes about it, um, which they, they haven't, they've chosen not to. I just haven't been engaging with them. So I don't know if they've done anything, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. It probably will be, you know, probably won't be any big deal. And we would have forgotten about it next week, but I just thought it was interesting. And it was one of those, I was like, really? Did you, who signed this off? Who really thought this was the best idea? You know, it's one of those where I was just shaking my head. Um, but yeah, I feel like go. there's a service here because our marketing fails of the week are typically like a brand who's run ads and they haven't really thought about it. They haven't focus grouped it with a wide enough audience to find out that actually this is absolute car crash waiting to happen. Completely, completely. There's a service there somewhere. Someone I think so. It. Yeah, ad testing, <laughs> ad sensitivity testing. Yeah, um, the, the snowflake you. panel or something where they just throw out snowflakes and then yeah, we'll see. If- I'll be head of that panel. Head of snowflakes. snowflakes. <laughs> yeah, head of snowflakes. That's me. I'm, I'm like I said, I don't say that in offense to myself. People can call me a snowflake all they like. So I don't care. <laughs> that's my title, and I'm fine with that. So the snowflakes um, are beautiful and unique. There you go. There you go. And also I can tell you if your Howard Shipman ads is probably gonna get reported on by the BBC for being negative. So, Absolutely. you know, always worth thinking about. Always worth thinking about. Anything else we want to touch on today, Tim? Any exciting things you want to talk about? Uh, coming up no um i'm gonna go and eat some fruit nice good for you, good for you. that's a healthy afternoon i'm not going to do that i'm gonna go eat crackers and hummus oh. <laughs> is that healthy probably not maybe not as healthy as fruit i don't as think part of a balanced diet everything's healthy yeah that's true you're right you're very right and on that note we'll end the podcast and see you all next week if you have any questions for us by the way that you'd like us to cover in the next podcast please let us know you can leave a comment um in the youtube comments or if you are listening later on you can send us an email at hello at exposioninja.com um with the subject line of podcast and ask us a question there and we will do our best to answer it on the next episode which will be next tuesday so have a fantastic week do good marketing don't involve serial killers in your adverts and give ai a go give ai a chance make some notes of those the end (laughs) See ya. Bye.